Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. On this week's episode, we're going to try something a little bit different, so I'm very curious to see uh, what people think. Um, it's a preview of a bunch of talks I'm going to give, although in all accuracy, uh, I've already given them, um, but I, I recorded these. I recorded the body of the show before I gave the talks, uh, and as I'll explain in the preview, part of the reason is because often I'm on the road speaking. I'm not in venues that can be taped. You know, whenever we can tape things, we want to post them on YouTube, uh, sometimes make them available on the show. But I thought I'd share with you some of the ideas that I was going to present since I had four different uh, speaking engagements uh, for various business audiences that I think are relevant both to business audiences and to uh, general audience. Um, and as you'll see, there, there were all kinds of different topics from energy heroes to how to win over supporters to sustainability to renewable energy. And uh, I bring on Adam Edmondson of CIP to, uh, to talk about those and to interview me. Um, and again, I, th I think it's pretty interesting. It was fun to record, um, and hopefully you enjoy it. But, but definitely let me know one way or the other. Um, as always, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. So check out the preview. And on the other side, I'll tell you how they went. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. This is CIP's Adam Edmondson here talking with Alex Epstein about a couple of upcoming events uh, that he'll be speaking at in Calgary. Hi, Alex. Hey, uh, just to let everyone know, um, on our newsletter movement, which you should definitely be subscribed to, go to industrialprogress.com. If you haven't, it's right there. Just enter in your email. Anyway, we often talk about different speaking engagements uh, that I'm doing, and often people are interested in them, but often those, I mean, those engagements are almost always not public and often not taped. And this week, there are a lot of them. So I figured I'd give you a sneak preview uh, of you know, who I'm talking to, what I plan to say, and hopefully it'll be interesting. And uh, if anyone can hear anything in the background, um, I am the only time, the only slot, it's pretty busy week, so the only slot I've found um, to be able to do this is while driving around the streets of Calgary where I am for, for two weeks. So I apologize about the logistics. I promise uh, I'll be safe. I've got my navigation. I've got my headset in. So, uh, uh, unfortunately, I'm fairly well versed in the things we'll be talking about, so shouldn't shouldn't cause me any accidents. All right. Uh, so you're going to be talking to the World Petroleum Council's Youth Forum on the subject of energy and the environment, uh, the role of renewables. That's the name of their session. And uh, so why don't I start by reading the description of this? In an increasingly carbon-constrained world. Regulatory and public pressure are driving energy sources to compete both economically and on the basis of their environmental footprint. Renewable energy options provide opportunities to lower the emissions intensity of oil and gas extraction and production methods. Current trends are indicating that the decades ahead will see increasing economic pressure on conventional fossil fuels from renewable energy sources as well. Tomorrow's energy leaders will need to understand the shifting economics and the technological solutions of this trend. So what are you going to tell them about this? Well, the, the whole, this, always when we're thinking about an issue, we should examine our starting point. Our, what are we assuming in this? And here there's a whole bundle of assumptions. The central one being that so-called renewable energy, which is usually just a euphemism uh, for solar and wind, since environmentalists often oppose hydroelectric energy, um, that this is somehow environmentally superior. And if we want you know, a better, more livable planet uh, to exist on, then this is the ideal. And that is 
something that we can examine objectively. And if we examine it objectively, the results may be rather surprising uh, to people. So we might as well start with the issue of climate, which is, is the most urgent issue in people's minds uh, anyway. And the assumption is, well, you know, the use of fossil fuels, which keeps going up and up and up, that that has been, that is creating a more dangerous climate, that we're more in danger from the climate than ever. We can expect to be so in the future, that things have been getting worse. Uh, what's interesting about this assumption is that you almost never hear actual data on how much safer or more dangerous the climate has gotten. Uh, most of the discussion is either anecdotes um, and so just essentially claiming that a negative, picking one of the million negative things going on in the climate and uh, attributing it to fossil fuels and claiming that this means things are worse than ever, even though negative weather events happen all the time. So it's very like out of context, non-quantitative approach or um, taking the predictions of certain scientists with certain computer models uh, without providing much discussion of whether those models have ever made uh, valid predictions. And as the recent UN report has illustrated even more, none of these models have ever made predictions. Uh, long story short, the climate is way too complex. The system, the theory that it's primarily driven by um, increases in CO2 emissions on the order of 0.03% to 0.04%, uh, models based on that theory have uh, have had no predictive value. Um, and in fact, have, have um, you know, been wrong and, and dramatically overshot actual changes in temperature, which have been negligible in the last 15 years as you've had record amounts, record amounts of CO2. But anyway, um, what, what should we look at to resolve this issue or to actually get uh, data rather than anecdotes, rather than speculation? Uh, well, I think the best body of evidence to start with is what how many people are actually dying from climate-related uh, causes? And how has that changed as CO2 emissions have increased? And fortunately, we have very good data on this from it's called MDAT, the International Disaster Database, which tracks the statistic of climate-related deaths, which you can also call climate danger. And the interesting fact that's almost uh, never publicized that, you know, was a revelation to me when I discovered it. And, and, um, those who have read my book, Fossil Fuels Improving the Planet, it's, I think, very surprising to people who read that, that actually in the last 80 years, you might expect, well, it's gotten two times more dangerous, three times more dangerous, and, well, maybe that's worth it because of the benefits of fossil fuels. But in fact, it has gotten 50 times safer. Climate-related deaths have gone down 98%. And what that points to uh, is not that like fossil fuels have somehow, um, that the change they've they've had on the climate, and if there is some, has been so positive, although it, it might as well, it, you can't know whether it's positive or negative without investigation. Um, the issue is that there's obviously another force going on that far outweighs any natural or man-made changes in the climate, and that force is, is technology. Um, and in particular, if we look at, well, what has actually made us safer from the climate, it's it's pretty clear that we have, um, you know, a much more advanced state of what we can call climate uh, protection. The climate is an, is an incredibly dangerous place. It's inherently dangerous. It's inherently uh, changing all the time. And it turns out the real question is not, are we impacting it a little bit, um, you know, which I think we probably are, uh, but how do we make ourselves safe from it? And, and the answer to that has been through technologies that have been overwhelmingly powered by uh, fossil fuels. So that's why you get that's why you get this this you know substantial increase in, in CO2 emissions, and yet um, an even more dramatic increase in in climate safety. Uh, so I mean, just a good issue to illustrate this. I mean, easy issue is something like uh, you know heating homes, like the kind of homes we live in, because a lot of what's going to happen with the climate is bad weather events or heat waves or cold snaps. Are we better off from those now or before we started using a lot of fossil fuels? Well, the more fossil fuels people are using, the more sturdy homes they can build, the more they can uh, generate heating and air conditioning. And this kind of thing is, is often uh, derided as adaptation, but really adaptation is the crucial issue 
in in climate because again climate is inherently dangerous the key is what is your ability uh, to adapt um, and there's other you know another sh- sort of striking example is drought uh, we often hear that drought is a big problem drought related deaths are actually down 99.98 percent and think about why well because what can you uh, I mean if you have a drought now you can alleviate it thanks to oil-powered convoys that can take um, yeah, that can take good harvests and help move them to places with uh, with bad harvests. You've got modern, you know, petroleum and natural gas-powered agriculture, which is you know much more resilient and, and flexible, and thus um, you know can produce harvests in climates that previously couldn't uh, produce harvests. So the actual story of fossil fuels and climate is actually a story of fossil fuels powering climate protection technology. This is, this is what the data, the real data, not the out-of-context stuff, not the speculation, not the political statements, but the actual data about the key metric, which is climate-related deaths, that's what they, they tell us. And, and um, any discussion should begin with that. And if people claim that, well, the, tri- cha- the trend is going to change dramatically, uh, well, they have to acknowledge first that one of the key determinants of climate safety, and we can talk about more broadly environmental quality, is cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. So if we're looking at what is a good source of energy environmentally, the first question is, is it cheap, plentiful, and reliable? And, um, you know, fossil fuels are, nuclear, I believe, can be, hydroelectric is and or can be, um, and renewables are, again, looking at the actual data of their performance. These are, are the biggest uh, energy failures of the past 75 years, which is as long as they've been, you know, they've, they've been on the market a while and they, they haven't solved their fundamental problems of unreliability. Um, and you know, the fact that they deal with fairly dilute inputs from, uh, from the sun. And so I don't, we can talk about, uh, there's a lot of other aspects, but it's a wrong assumption that so-called renewables are better environmentally or moral and if we exam- morally, and if we examine that assumption, uh, you know, the you know fossil fuels is you know are, are far morally superior to um, sources of energy that are that can't generate the energy uh, that we need. Now, as far as what the future holds, we should have a free market. So if these things can, and if people interested in in these technologies uh, can, you know, produce something. Uh, you know, useful, then of course they should feel free to do so. Same thing for nuclear or anything else. Um, uh, but at this point in time, they should just be recognized as, um, you know, as a, as a failure and, and certainly not used as a pretext for restricting fossil fuels, which we need uh, urgently more of. To just end on a statistic that I like to use, uh, if, you, if you look at just what does it take to have a modern standard of living, even if you take a fairly low energy using place like Germany, for everyone to have that, uh, standard will require at least double the worldwide energy production. So, in fact, uh, I believe that our, our fossil fuel use uh, and production is, is way too low. And, again, if, if we go by the data versus out-of-context uh, claims and uh, arbitrary speculation, uh, I think that conclusion is, is uh, very strongly supported. One of the concepts closely related to that of uh, renewables is sustainability. And while you're at the WPC Youth Forum, I know that you're also going to be participating in uh, what they call a knowledge cafe on the concept of sustainability. Um, can you tell us a little bit of what you're going to say about that? Yeah, this is another. This is another uh, case where y- you want to. You want to understand or or um, have uh, you know be be inquisitive about the starting point. So ask you know ask is this what am I what am I assuming here? What is what is are there any are there any false assumptions in this discussion? Because you have to remember most of this terminology is terminology coined by people who are anti fossil fuels and often anti development. So. Whenever somebody uses a new word or you know, when they use terminology, uh, they can often get away. They're, uh, the terminology is often incoherent or confusing. I mean, this is the case with sustainability. I've talked to 
know, when I work with different companies or talk to different audiences, I ask, what is sustainability? And the first thing everyone says, well, it's really hard to define exactly what sustainability is. I mean, come on. If we're using words, we should be clear. Um, and the reason that sustainability is, quote, hard to define is that it is um, – or it's hard to define for oil companies. It is a term, it's, it's an idea or a kind of very confused idea that is used to attack fossil fuel uh, companies. So let's, let's just ask this about sustainability. When I, when I go to college campuses, they talk about sustainability. And my first question is, what is unsustainability? Because sustainability implies unsustainability. So what is unsustainability? And the answer usually amounts to fossil fuels in particular, or capitalism in general. So the origin of sustainability, one of the major origins is the philosopher Karl Marx, author of the Communist Manifesto, who argued that capitalism, by allowing people you know, freedom and property rights, would inherently self-destruct, and that you needed, uh, you needed government to wisely create a quote-unquote uh, sustainable uh, world. And, you know, to say the least, I disagree uh, with this viewpoint, but it's, it's important that it's based on the idea that capitalism and then various institutions under it are unsustainable, particularly with fossil fuels. It's the idea that um, because they're, they're limited, then it's somehow unsustainable. It's somehow not long range uh, to use them. But this, is, this doesn't follow uh, at all. Uh, the policy, if we look at human progress, human beings are continuously finding new and better ways uh, of doing things. You know, there's an expression of the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of, out of stones. And so the question at any given time is, what is the best way of doing this? And if you actually are dealing with a raw material that's in short supply, then it won't be the best for long. But, you, you know, just with a proper price system, uh, you know, as the price goes up, people will find substitutes. So there's no, but it's not unsustainable. There's nothing, um, there's nothing inherently, um, you, you should still, you should still use um, the best thing. And often one thing paves the way uh, for the other. So um, that's, that's, I'm going a bit long on that, on that answer, but it's, the proper view is that this quote unquote sustainable policy, and I think really better to think of it as the progressive policy, is for individuals to use the best technology uh, at at any given time. And whether you know you're, whether that technology is the best for five years or twenty years or a hundred years or a million years, uh, you should always you should always use the best, and you should always be free. Uh, to use the best. And, and with the oil industry, we're talking about a raw material that there are over 10 billion barrels of over underground. And so it could be hundreds of years uh, that the long range farsighted thing is that the best substitute for oil will be more oil. Someone can outcompete it. Great. But the progressive policy is to let the energies compete, not to arbitrarily privilege solar and wind just because the sun will be around for 5 billion years. That's not going to help the person who starves today because he is forced to use inferior solar energy um, on the grounds that he should use it because, because it, it, it'll be usable and inferior for 5 billion years. So Alex, I know you're also going to be talking to the Gas Processors Association of Canada and that you'll have two talks for them this week, one on energy heroes and another one on how to turn fossil fuel opponents into fossil fuel supporters. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about those talks? Uh, sure, I'll start with with Energy Heroes, which is uh, one of my my favorite uh, things to talk about, and it's actually an energy hero, or actually multiple energy heroes that that got me involved in energy uh, in the first place. So you know, I'm known, uh, you know, most. People who are familiar with me know me as you know someone who's an expert in energy who follows energy. Um, but you know, I, um, for my early career, I just I focused on philosophy and I focused on business, um, and I just happened to fall in love with energy while I was studying. I knew a little bit about it, but I was I was studying uh, the life of John D. Uh, Rockefeller, and I was actually just studying him not because I was obsessed with energy, but because I was really interested in in the question of 
um, did he really have a monopoly? Was he destructive or was he actually uh, a productive hero? And I, you know, I concluded that he was uh, a productive hero. Uh, but in the process, I, you know, I, re- I learned a lot of the history of the oil industry. And uh, my feeling upon studying it was, oh my gosh, how, does, how did I not know this? I went to supposedly some of the best schools for high school and college. And yet I didn't know that there was this, really this one industry the oil industry, or now we call it the oil and gas industry, um, that within the space of a few years completely uh, transformed human life. And in particular, uh, the years from 1859, which was the beginning of the oil industry, to 1864, uh, when it, it, it had gone from 1859 to basically nothing, to the leading provider of illumination in the world. And because because the people in that industry figured out how to produce oil in large quantities and to turn it into useful uh, illumination. I remember a quote from a, a chemist in New York who just observed that people in the countryside who had previously had little to no light could actually enjoy their nights. And it just struck me, wow, this, this industry literally gave, you know, 25% more life to these people, they, you know, whatever, whatever years they had, there was more life in those years because, because they have to, because they could see at night and everything uh, that implies it's hard to even imagine what it's like not to be able uh, to see at night. And that, that really clued me in to, uh, made me eager to study the rest of the history of oil. And what, what you find is that there's just hero after hero after hero. And the thing that I want to stress, because it's the Gas Processors Association, so these are people who turn, you know, the natural gas that comes out of the ground into useful uh, purified natural gas and then other products. So it's, it's not that just the thing we get from the ground is just automatically useful for a natural gas car or a natural gas heating. Um, it, it needs to be purified. And if it's not purified, you run into a lot of problems, including it can be uh, explosive. So because these guys are in the purification or the refining portion of the industry, I want to focus on the heroes in in refining. And refining is how I uh, got interested in it through Rockefeller, who was the greatest refiner um, in history. And there's just all sorts of, of inspiring refining stories. I only have, I think, 25 minutes uh, to talk about it. But, you know, some, uh, some points I want to hit on are, first of all, just the heroes who who figured out how to uh, make oil valuable in the first place. And one of the themes I want to stress throughout is that what their, their industry is really given short shrift because when we talk about oil, it's often just, oh, oil's in the ground and we just get it out. Well, oil's in the ground, but it's not naturally a resource. It's hidden, you know, it's hidden, trapped, and invisible. And, and useless. We have to, you know, the, the exploration and production has to, you know, get it from its hidden and trapped state. And then the refining industry has to turn it from useless uh, to useful. And so with the, you know, the beginning of the American oil industry was uh, in large part due to the work of a guy named George Bissell and a guy named Benjamin Silliman, particular a chemist from Yale, who uh, really was the first one to turn what was called rock oil into useful light. And because he could do that, that then inspired them to look for oil. And then a whole bunch of engineers went into that. And what, instead of having all of this oil, which is just, you know, compressed ancient dead plants being completely useless, it was lighting up uh, people's lives. So I'll talk a little bit about uh probably talk a little bit about of the cell and filament and, and why they should be viewed as heroes. Um, and then there's, you know, Rockefeller who epitomizes the uh, many things, but, but particularly the idea uh, of efficiency of figuring out how to, how to get every little piece of value out of, um, out of a raw material. And, that's really important to the natural gas industry because the natural gas, oil wasn't a resource, but natural gas certainly wasn't a resource. Natural gas was something that often coexists with oil, that it's a source of pressure 
and that would often explode and kill people. So it was the opposite of a resource. It was a hazard. But because of the legacy of, of Rockefeller, of figuring out a way to turn everything, including the hazard, into benefits, we now have this, uh, you know, this thriving natural gas uh, industry. And then, you know, another story that's really great is the story about the oil and gas industry and world hunger. And when we're when we're a kid, you know, when our kids were often told, you know, the goal you should all solve world hunger. That's that's kind of the least controversial goal that a human being can adopt. Is I'm going to solve world hunger. Uh, and but what they don't tell us is that that problem is substantially solved. And that a big part of it is that the oil and gas industry has made agriculture much, much more productive, which means a lot more food at a lot lower prices for a lot more people. The natural gas industry is, is essential here because the um, one of the keys to the proliferation of agriculture was um, you know, by some chemists, Fritz Haber and Carl Bosch, uh, and they... they um, you know, they figured out how to take, how to use natural gas, which has a lot of energy in it, to synthesize nitrogen from the air, nitrogen being crucial to crops growing, and to make synthetic fertilizer. You know, otherwise they would have had to rely on natural fertilizer like bat guano, which which runs out uh, very quickly. So these, and then the oil industry, by figuring out how to refine oil into diesel and by making that available on a large scale, they made possible mechanized agriculture, so you can have super, super powerful machines uh, like you know, a harvester that can reap the equivalent of 500,000 loaves of bread. Which, you know, who knows how long that would take and how many human beings take how long uh, to do that. So in all of these cases, what you have is people who are taking a raw material in nature that is not automatically useful and they're creating a use for it. They're turning it from a non-value into a value, from a non-resource into a resource. And when we think about heroes, a lot of what a hero does is he creates something new. He creates something great. And what I want to stress is that they are an industry that is inherently creating new things and great things, and that they have a legacy of heroes who have done this, and that they should embrace that legacy and think of, you know, and think of their job as 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 um, practicing the state of the art of creating new energy resources and, uh, for that matter, petroleum products, and as well as as finding new uh, new techniques, and that they should they should think of themselves as creative people, and they should look at look at the heroes of their industry uh, as creators. So because they're in their finding part of it, I mean it's true for any part, of it, but. Um, I really want to stress this idea of heroic creators in their industry because this is not an industry that's treated as creative. It's an industry that's treated as uh, uh, exploitative. And if they if they buy that in any way, shape, or form, they're not going to enjoy their work as much. And they're, if, if your manager, your, your employees won't be as productive, they won't be as passionate. Um, won't be as happy, all things be equal, and certainly won't be able to defend themselves against the many people who need uh, to know the truth. So I think if I can get that across, then you know it'll help them out a lot, and then hopefully they'll become interested in other CIP materials because we have a lot of materials about this stuff. Well, that itself sounds like it would convert fossil fuel opponents into fossil fuel supporters, so... I assume making the the actual story of the oil industry uh, available to people has has something to do with how you recommend doing that. Yeah, and anyone I mean, for those in the industry who are serious about this kind of thing, if you go to industrialprogress.com/store, you can get the story of oil course, which um, has you know much more on this topic than that we can than I can cover in a speech or uh, a podcast. So what are you thinking of, of focusing on in, in, your, in your talk to them on how to turn fossil fuel opponents into fossil fuel supporters? Well, this is, you know, this is something that I've been, I've been giving, you know, I first, I first gave this talk um, earlier this year, 
And, you know, I've, I've done a bunch of different iterations of it. So in terms of, in terms of turning fossil fuel opponents into, into fossil fuel supporters, this is, this is, uh, this is a question that should be at the top of the mind of everyone in the industry, uh, because we have, uh, I mean, we have a state of affairs where anyone working in the, the fossil fuel industry, or more technically the hydrocarbon industry, you know, their well-being is under attack. And if they understand how important their industry is, that means everything in the world they value is, is under attack. So to the extent that what they do is compromised and thwarted, that means more expensive, less available, less reliable energy uh, for people, and you know that means a, a lower a lower quality of life. And you certainly have environmentalists who are in favor of cutting uh, fossil fuels by numbers like 80 percent, 85 percent, 90 percent, 95 percent. It's a really there's a serious movement against the industry, and it has real consequences. It's not just a bunch of academics. It, it is manifesting itself in policy all the time. This is why it's so hard to build something like a pipeline, which used to be a celebrated achievement, is now viewed uh, as a public menace. So in terms of in terms of what should be the priority of the industry, figuring out how to win hearts and minds, so to speak, is at the top of the list. It is a it is a financial priority because. You know these policies, you know, anti-development policies, cost billions and billions and billions of dollars, and they they lead to an en- enormous amounts of uncertainty in the future. So that 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 depresses. If your job is to create shareholder value going forward, um, the you know your existing wealth creation is compromised, and then then confidence in your ability to future wealth creation uh, is compromised, and. So it's this is this is a crucial issue, and it's it's been something that I've uh, you know I've focused a lot um, on a lot in my career, um, and you know I come from the standpoint of somebody who wasn't a fossil fuel supporter, let alone uh, a fossil fuel champion, which I would consider myself. Now I was somewhat ambivalent and, and not particularly passionate about the issue either way, and a lot of what you know, subsequently, I've both become passionate and convinced a lot of other people to become passionate and convinced a lot of other people who were opposed uh, to become passionate. And I'm interested in, in sharing, um, you know, how I've been able to do it and what I think the industry uh, can do more uh, effectively. But whether whether my approach is the right approach or not, it is it is an imperative to understand why there's so much hatred of the industry and to figure out how to change it. Unless you think the hatred is justified. If you think it's really justified, then, well, then you should leave the industry. Uh, but if you think it's good, then you should figure out a way to persuade people. And it's not a very good argument to say, well, the other side just has emotion or people don't want to know facts. That's a cop out. Lots of throughout history, all kinds of movements of all kinds of beliefs have persuaded people. And people used to have a higher opinion, much higher opinion of the oil industry uh, than they do now. So there's nothing inherently impossible about persuading people. So if we're failing at persuading people, it means we are doing a bad job. And I poll the audience to see who thinks that the oil industry is doing a good job. Um, but here's the basic fact. The oil and gas industry is arguably the most valuable industry in the world. And it is arguably the most hated industry in the world. So, you know, if a, you know, if if um, you know, that is not a good record. Like that's the worst conceivable thing. I mean, if you if you're the PR for something like the tobacco industry or let alone the cocaine industry, you know, you have more and you have an inherently more difficult problem. But if if this is really as good an industry as I believe and as many of you believe, then it's completely unacceptable that it's viewed as one of the worst uh, industries in the world. And that means there's 
it means it means there's something one there must be something fundamentally wrong. So th- we need to look for fundamental solutions. It can't just be you know somebody says oh let's use Facebook. No, because if you're there's something about what's happening that's obviously wrong in a big big way. And what what is that that thing? Well, I mentioned the tobacco industry, um, and I think if if you look at if you look at um, the big thing is just to look at what do people believe about the oil industry negatively, and then what argument have people made, and then how has the oil industry responded? It's actually pretty simple. Um, the environmentalist movement has made the argument that the oil industry and the fossil fuel industry is destroying the planet. That is, it, through its activities, primarily emissions of CO2, it is progressively making the planet an unlivable place. And that therefore, as fast as possible, we need to stop using this kind of planet-destroying energy and start using so-called green, clean, uh, renewable energy, you know, namely solar, wind, and and biofuels. So this is, you know, this is a this is a very clear argument. The idea that fossil fuels are destroying the planet. Now, how does the industry respond to this? Because this is a fatal argument. If you accept this argument, you don't have anywhere to go. I mean, the only thing you can say is, well, it's going to take a long time to get to the good form of energy. But the response to that is, well, if you're destroying the planet, we don't have all that much time, and at least it should be as fast as possible. So the way it often happens is, is you know, the environmentalists will say, we should get off fossil fuels and uh, you know, really soon. And the fossil fuel industry says, yeah, that's the ideal. We need to do that at some point but it's going to take a while. So essentially you're arguing over an expiration date. And I, for reasons I'll explain, I think that's wrong. It's, it's completely untrue in terms of the, the idea that we should think in terms of not using fossil fuels, that that's any kind of ideal, but for sure it's a losing argument. So this is, this is, um, if we look at how the oil industry responds, their basic response is, well, yeah, we're an evil, but we're a necessary evil. And, you might say, well, don't they respond by saying, oh, well, what about jobs? And what about, you know, we help the economy and then that kind of thing. Well, those are good, but not if you're not if they're part of a, a product that's, just, you know, like like destroying the planet. I mean, it's considered like a much worse form of cigarettes. It's a self-destructive addiction because maybe we feel good now using it, but in the long run, we're destroying our planet. So you can't say, like if somebody, if the tobacco industry came out with an ad campaign and said, hey, we're going to double the number of smokers, but don't worry, this will generate new revenue for the government and new jobs. People would say, no, but we don't want revenue coming from poison. We don't want jobs producing poison. And that's what the environmentalists say about your industry. They say you're producing uh, poison. So it's no... It's, it's no answer to say, well, we're producing a lot of jobs producing poison. Yeah, that's precisely the problem. We need to find a way to produce jobs that aren't producing uh, uh, poison. So essentially, it's pretty simple. One side has made an argument that is deadly to the other side, and the other side has rolled over and played dead. So it's, it, it, you know, I've worked a lot, you know, I even... I've worked with a lot of people in, in communications and, you know, I myself do consulting with companies, but I tend to have a very different view than most consultants because most people talk in terms of, well, let's have a better Facebook strategy or let's, should we make our videos two minutes? If you're, a, if you're not, if you're not refuting the deadly argument against you, you know, you can have a billion dollars in Facebook ads. It's not going to help you very much. It's not going to solve um, the fundamental problem. So the way in which Center for Industrial Progress and I have won over people is simple. We have an answer to the argument. We can explain why the argument is wrong. And it's it's really a pretty simple thing. And and you know from a certain perspective, 
the oil industry likes to think of itself as, oh, we're super logical, they're super emotional. Well, emotions and logic aren't necessarily opposed. The other side actually has a more, if you accept the idea that you're destroying the planet, their position makes more sense. If you're destroying the planet, we should get rid of you. The oil industry's problem is it doesn't have, it's not making a clear, it's not clearly answering the case and making the case that it is in fact an incredibly moral good uh, industry. And it's, it's not addressing that destroying the planet uh, criticism. And yeah, that's a lot of our success at CIT is simply that we have the argument, you know, the right argument. So the, the basic argument is, well, what does it mean to be moral? It means, my view, that you are doing something that benefits individual human lives. And if we, if we want to look at, um, if we want to look at any any technology as is more or industry as is moral or not, what do we do? Well, we should look at in every area of life. Is this making life better or worse? And I think if you look at whether it's uh, the opportunity to have more time to do things you love, the ability to, you know, travel and, and spend time with loved ones and, and achieve your dreams, the ability to be more productive at work because you have a lot of energy powering machines that make you more productive. Every area of like agriculture, uh, manufacturing, more, you know, fossil fuels are making life much, much better. And of course, well, what about the issue of environment? And, and the interesting thing about that is, is it's assumed that we make our environment worse. Um, but all the evidence, in fact, is that we make it uh, better. If you just ask yourself, would you be, would you rather live in the climate, in the environment 100 years ago or today? Today is much, much cleaner. Why? Because we have a lot of energy uh, to clean it up. Nature isn't very clean, not very safe. We need a lot of energy and a lot of technology to make it a much cleaner and safer place. What about climate? Aren't we, um, you know, changing climate? Well, that's not really the question. I mean, maybe we're having a, it looks like, you know, might be having an impact, but uh, ask yourself, is the climate safer today or 100 years ago? Well, it's way safer today. Um, in fact, you know, if we look back 80 years, which is when most, when fossil fuel emissions really jumped, CO2 emissions really jumped, we're actually, you know, it's, it's, we're actually 50 times safer in terms of you're 50 times less likely to die from climate than, than you would be 80 years ago. So um, really, if, if we think about all of these things in a big picture and human-centered way, fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry is incredibly moral. So what the industry needs to do, the first thing it needs to do is that has nothing to do with media or tricks or anything like that. Although those things can be useful. The first thing it needs to do is understand why it's good. And I've talked to everyone from, you know, entry workers to CEOs, and I'll tell them to their face, you do not understand nearly enough about how much your industry contributes to human life. And the first order of business, if you want to be able to persuade people, is to understand that case. And that's why you know, I wrote the book, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet. That's why I give talks like this. That's why when we work with companies, a lot of what we work on is training their workforces to understand uh, the moral case for um, the fossil fuel uh, industry. And I should say, I have a new, I have a new document out, which will be out tomorrow, I'm um, doing this on Tuesday, that everyone can check out, which is called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which lays this out, I think, better than I, than I ever have. And I think that, that should be um, a benefit. The idea is priority number one, if you want to persuade people of your case, you have to know what your case is. And really the oil industry has been trying to persuade people of a case that it doesn't really understand, particularly on uh, environmental issues. And it should be no surprise that it fails. But the nice thing is, if you actually understand the idea that fossil fuels improve the planet, that energy is one of the most crucial things for a livable environment, you can totally turn the tables, you can totally persuade people because you have a very powerful argument that's logical and that you know corresponds to uh, 
to reality. And, and you'll, you'll find yourself being much more persuasive, being much more passionate, being able to take the high ground. A lot of things I and other people from CIP and our, our following have been able to do. And it, it all comes down to, uh, to understanding. So I hope, I hope I can convey to people that it's worth taking, you know, five, 10, 15 hours of your life to really understand this stuff. And, and especially, you know, whether you're just a regular person in industry or whether you're, especially if you're in communication, you should take a lot longer and it will totally blow your mind how much more effective you are once you really have the core uh, answers. Well, these are really powerful thoughts, and I look forward to seeing what the reactions are. Um, anyone who is listening to this who follows our our newsletter movement, um, if you don't, you can go to our site. Again, it's industrialprogress.com, uh, and you can sign up there. We will post the the manifesto. Alex mentioned it's coming out tomorrow, and I think we'll have results for you from from these talks and look forward to reporting the impacts on the industry. Yeah, now the manifesto, we're not sure yet when it's going to be on the website. If you're a movement, you have the best chance of getting it early. It's, it's primarily directed at the industry. If you really want a copy, uh, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net and make your case. Uh, but at some point or another, it'll be, it'll be uh, released publicly. Okay, great. Uh, anything else you want to cover? Let's see. Now it's just that I think that the common denominator among all of these is that there's a body of knowledge that includes like a, a pro-industrial philosophy and then the, you know, the factual instances of that philosophy and, and sort of the, how a pro-industrial philosophy gives you an incredibly powerful perspective on all of these issues and allows you to uh, catch and debunk a lot of the ideas that have been engineered to oppose you. And then, um, you know, gives you a lot of, of positive arguments uh, to, to defend yourself. And, and just even the awareness that there's another philosophy, we can call it the philosophy of industrial progress versus the philosophy of environmentalism. We haven't gotten fully into it today, but just the idea that there are different philosophies from which to look at these things, I hope is powerful to people because it, it should indicate, question the philosophy behind everything you hear, and then think about your own philosophy. And if, and if you're not happy with the existing ones look, that you've seen, look for alternatives. One of the big mistakes the industry has made is it just accepts all of the ideas of environmentalism, which is really the anti-industrial, anti-development philosophy, which has, a, which has had a monopoly on environmental and um, industrial philosophy for a while, but it is a monopoly that is completely undeserved and that hopefully is in the process of being uh, broken. All right, Alex, thank you for this uh, preview of your talks. All right, I hope everyone enjoyed it. Thanks to Adam for agreeing to interview me on the show. So let me tell you how it went. Uh, so on Wednesday, I spoke at the Gas Processors Association of Canada, I think that's right, slash Petroleum Venture, Joint Venture Conference. These organizations have very long strings of letters and, and uh, word reference to, to memorize. Um, and there I spoke about energy heroes, and I spoke about how to convert fossil fuel opponents into supporters. Um, you know, I think both both went really well. Uh, got a lot of got a lot of positive feedback from people. Um, one thing that was, was fun about them that I've I've become more and more an advocate of in in speaking is just being able to interact with audiences. I think there's a certain model of speech historically where it's just considered that you're just supposed to to speak and everyone is supposed to listen. And as an audience member, I don't usually enjoy that too much unless it's someone like a stand-up comedian where, and even there you're interacting in the sense in the form of laughing and the, and, and sharing whether you think it's funny. Um, but I don't particularly like sitting through 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. 
And it, as a speaker, it's much harder to get a sense of where people are and what's working and what's not uh, without interacting. So over the years, I've, I've come to think of speaking much more as a conversation. I think that makes it much easier to keep everyone engaged and, and to make sure that, that they get a couple of, of key points. Because ultimately, the purpose of the speech is not for them to get as many words as the speech consists of, uh, but rather to get a couple of, of, of valuable ideas to take away and, and being engaged and, and being able to give feedback in the moment is a great way of, of increasing the odds that, that that happens. So both with energy heroes and with the opponents and converting fossil fuel opponents into supporters, I thought I thought that went um, really well. One thing I stressed in the second lecture, which I haven't done too much publicly, is just the relationship between understanding and communication. Because as we do more work with companies and communications teams, we find that one of the biggest areas for improvement is just clarity on the case for their industry. And, and this leads me to mention uh, this week, or last, last week, I should say, um, we rolled out my new manifesto, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which you can get at, at industrialprogress.com slash moral case. And it's a manifesto about communications, ultimately, but a huge part of it is you need to understand the moral case for your industry if you're ever going to communicate it effectively, because you have opponents who have morally um, put you in the moral position of, of the tobacco industry, or worse, selling a, a self-destructive addiction. Um, and unless you can morally reposition yourself and accurately reposition yourself, uh, you know anything else you try is not going to be effective and won't, won't deserve to be effective, because we shouldn't settle in life for a self-destructive addiction as an energy source were that the case, which it definitely, uh, definitely isn't. But the broader point is understanding comes before communication. And when we find ourselves having difficulty communicating something, one big area to look is, well, how, how clearly do we understand it ourselves? And that's not a bad segue to the other speaking I did. So the, the first batch, the first two were at, at, that confer at the conference, uh, GPAC slash PJVC on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, I spoke at the World Petroleum Council Youth Forum. And that was, that was a much bigger audience. There were, I think, 1,500 people at least registered. There uh, could have easily been 1,000 people in the audience when I spoke. I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention too clearly. The, the first time I spoke was on sustainability, which I, I, there were these breakout sessions in the main hall where there were these semi-private, semi-public areas where there may be 50 people, and it was called the Knowledge Cafe. And that was really fun because I, I like teaching a lot, and, and there's a lot to be said for small audiences in terms of the amount of interactiveness you can get. And, and I like the teaching format as against the panel and debate format uh, in terms of actual retention because it's, it's a lot easier to, to help somebody understand something when it's not as much of a, of a fight with all these short blows. Now, I, I do like debating, and I think it's important for people to get a general sense of how different views stack up, but I don't know that that's, I think that's usually not the way in which, that's a good entree into, into explaining positions and introducing to new positions, but I don't think it's, it's the format that's going to lead to the most retention. I never spoken about the topic of sustainability before. I realize I've never done a power hour on it. I've talked a little bit about it in, in how uh, in fossil fuels improve the planet in terms of what the fallacy is when I discuss renewable energy. But it was it was good to have a session to just um, you know, for lack of a better word, dismantle that idea and then explain that the alternative is what I call uh, progressiveness and. Uh, rather than go into it too much here, I think I'll write I'll write a Forbes piece about it maybe next week, uh, because it, it's worth writing about. It's this it's one of these buzzwords that's used by everyone. It's it's used all the time in the particularly the oil and gas industry, and it's you can't get a clear definition on it. And what it really amounts to is the idea that um, you know that capitalism and including the use of fossil fuels are ultimately short range. Um, and that they're going to deplete us of resources and destroy our environment. That's that's you know sustainability as an ideal is based on 
there there's some unsustainability. Unsustainability is always some form um, of of capitalism, and the appeal of it is that there's that there's some idea of being long range, which is definitely something appealing. We don't want to take action now that in in twenty years uh, comes back to bite us really hard. Um, but the you know history shows us an understanding of the nature of resources and environment shows us that the key to long-range success is not any kind of sustainability in the sense of sustaining the same process or repeating the same process over and over. It's always, it's always finding the best process, and that includes progressing all the time. So the, the, most, the best periods of history are not the ones where they're the most repetitive. And, you know, ancient Egypt would be an example of do we want to live there or do we want to live, do we want to go back for you know, hundreds of thousands of years where people are living off, quote, renewables in the form of crops and biomass and, and that kind of thing. No, there's nothing, there's nothing valuable at all about repetition as such. Uh, what's valuable is, is benefit, is the quality of life, and you achieve that by using the most progressive thing. And that right now, uh, for most uses, is fossil fuel energy. And the fact that we don't know how long that will continue to be the best, uh, whether because there's something better or because um, it becomes more expensive to produce. Uh, that that certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't use it now. It means we, we should absolutely use it now, find better and better ways to get those, and find better and better ways to get other things. But the idea of using what we can call unreliables or inferiors just because they're hypothetically repetitive, uh, that is, I mean, that is just a completely anti-progress, anti-human uh, view. And it, it, as I say in the book, it it idealizes the life of an animal, you know, the repetitive life of an animal. But human beings don't need to live that way and and can't thrive that way. So that was fun, and then the panel was really interesting because it was a it was one of these panels on you know it was this is an oil conference, and yet I was by far on that panel the most. I'm not, in my opinion, and I think many people's opinion, the only unapologetic supporter of the oil industry. Um, if we look at the participants, I think there were two who were you know, kind of hybrids of uh, fossil fuel industry and then solar and wind, or, or biofuels in one case. And then two were, um, one was had a solar company and the other had a green fund. And, and um, uh, one of those two named Tom Rand whom I got in the most uh, disagreement with on the panel, and, and I think his interaction and mine were the uh, somewhat the talk of the conference. He wrote a book called something like How to Kick the Fossil Fuel Habit. So it's one of these things where um, already, and, and also the topic is energy and, and the environment renewable. So the whole premise is that, yeah, what we do is not environmentally good. So it's you know it's I guess it's probably must be a necessary evil. How do we get off it as quickly as possible and as renewables the way? It's this complete, complete. Yes, our industry should expire at some point, but what's the expiration date? And can can solar and wind help? And if not, something else. And just this, just this complete, um, this complete acceptance of the environmental case against fossil fuels. So for the real answer to this, read the moral case for fossil fuels, which includes the environmental case for fossil fuels. That's at industrialprogress.com slash moral case. Um, so it, anyway, the, the setup of it, as is so often true on, on panels, was this, you know, unchallenged assumption, even by the industry itself, that the industry is environmentally, uh, you know, fundamentally environmentally uh, problematic. And so part of what I wanted to do was challenge that, and particularly on the on the climate issue. And one thing I learned from my last panel that I was on at Berkeley was that you know the more that the more that a panel is 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 framed in a way that you don't agree with, and the more the other speakers are going to frame things in a way you don't agree with, um, the more one has to be careful about how much one tries to bite off. Because uh, I remember in the Berkeley panel, I tried to give people an entirely new framework for looking at these issues, and I think it was just too much, especially given the other the other people on the panel is too too fast, and I couldn't give enough examples, 
in that amount of time, and then that allowed people to try to brush it off and not want to talk about it. So here I really focused on the issue of climate and, and made some of the, tried to step-by-step step explain my own, uh, my own discovery and my own thinking on this and how it evolved. And I think I, I did a pretty good job, and that then, that then led to some interesting follow-ups, including, hopefully this will be made online at some point, but including, I think what people found the most exciting part was me going against uh, uh, Tom Rand um, on, on this issue. In his view, he put up a, a giant uh, slide that said six degrees Celsius, and it had this very apocalyptic-looking desert. So it's this idea that, A, it's going, that average temperature is going to rise 6 degrees Celsius. So that's 11 degrees Fahrenheit, I think. And then, B, if that happened, the whole Earth would be uh, a desert, which if you think about 6 degrees from many, many places, the Earth would still be very wintry. And, of course, this, this number is the, not of course, but this number is completely the result of um, the prediction of models that uh, are completely arbitrary because they have completely failed all predictive tests, even much more mild models are, are complete uh, failures. But it was, it was interesting that a lot of the debate was he couched it as, well, look, you know, the scientists, you know, the world's smartest people are a lot smarter than anyone on this panel. He generously included not only smarter than him, but smarter than all the rest of us. Um, you know, as if intelligence is even like the sort of the decisive thing. Like if you have a certain IQ, you're always going to be right. But that that was his that was his explanation in effect. That he didn't even say who they were, but just the smartest people said this, and he mentioned some academies. And I, you know, my response was that I found the view to be totally wrong for reasons that I had already given and that he did not answer in his, but that his appeal to authority was much more offensive and as many appeals to authority completely misrepresented the actual uh, quote-unquote authorities uh, in in the field. So, no, we'll see what I can do to get a recording of that. Um, the one final takeaway from that was I was pretty surprised at how excited people were about that panel. I mean, I get in quite a few debates publicly and not, and this was pretty tame. Uh, but for people there, it was, for many people there, they were, and this was exciting to me, but they were just very excited. And they said, we didn't see anything like this, that everyone on the other panels was agreeing. And, and just the idea that, that there was some conflict, but also I think, I hope that, some, that someone stood up for the industry and made a, a new argument that they hadn't heard before and had a lot of confidence in it, that, that seemed to... Uh, excite them. So I hope it wasn't just the conflict, uh, but but also the existence of a new position. In any case, I got a lot. Of, I managed to stick around the conference and attend one of the social events after, and I got a lot of a lot of very positive feedback, a lot of of excitement. I think what this one lesson this can show to the industry is, if you're going to bring in all these anti-industry people, at least bring in some, at least bring in some heavy hitters on your own behalf. And you'd be amazed, or maybe you wouldn't, how often that's not the case. So if I can, if I can help with some of these panels uh, with other events in the future or as a uh, counteracting voice in the future, um, I definitely would. Although I'd say with a lot of these conferences, I do not think it's appropriate for them to invite as many anti-industry people as they do. I don't think that any any industry that really values itself will will spend go so far out of their way to find people who condemn it. I mean, if you have people who say, like, you're a addiction, you're a habit, uh, you know, the party's over, I mean, maybe you want one person like that to have a debate, but, but that that mentality has a major, major place at a conference. I mean, I'm not running these conferences, but uh, there's a real issue of, of what Ayn Rand called sanction of the victim there, whereas the, you know, the victim is in morally endorsing um, you know, his own destruction or the, the people who want to destroy him. Make no mistake, these people are trying to destroy your industry. That's their end game, you know, to destroy it and, and also to usually to, uh, to feed off it or to benefit from it in, in the process. So I don't, I'm not a believer that, that, these, that you should just indiscriminately quote-unquote, promote uh, debate. There's plenty of debate 
in the culture, if you're trying to educate people in your industry, uh, the preponderance, if you think it's a good industry, the preponderance of it better be um, about that and then how to make that, that better. So ways to improve it, but not, it can't be, yeah, let's just bring in a bunch of people who don't think we should exist or who don't, who think we should produce much, much less. And you would never see the solar industry do that. You would never see uh, software industry, computer hardware industry uh, do that. And I think that's, there are good, there are good reasons for that. Well, Again, let me know what you thought of this week's episode. As always, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, go to alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.